Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So today we have uh, a bit of a different episode. We have a, a money expert, Dan Malone from Malone Financial. Um, so just Dan, I guess for anyone who doesn't know you, what's what's your backstory and kind of what got you to maybe where you are now? And yeah, just just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for having me on, Aina. Um, so as you said, my name is Dan Malone. So I originally kind of my background in business and money and finance and all that kind of thing came from my university days. So originally, like when I was in secondary school, I had no interest in kind of business or, and money at all. You know, I was very much kind of doing subjects around like history and geography and very kind of written essay based topics. And it was only when I was kind of doing the CAO to kind of decide what to do in university that I picked the business degree and I suppose the logic and rationale at the time there was you know business degrees specifically the BCom the Bachelor of Commerce in in UCD University College Dublin is is very broad and it covers a lot of various topics so I was kind of like well you know business is you know I'm bound to get some sort of a career or some sort of insight by doing this degree so kind of went in there not knowing what to expect and ultimately by my final year I'd kind of fallen in love with everything to do with finance tax accountancy investing i was kind of just fascinated by that kind of world um and then that kind of led me on to doing a master's in accountancy in the ucd smurfit school i spent three three years four in total with an internship working for price waterhouse coopers who are one of the big four financial services companies specifically i was working in a department called the asset and wealth management department so I would look at the financial statements of some of the biggest investment funds uh, in the world. And during my time there, I kind of got exposure to every kind of investment asset class there is. And that really kind of, I suppose, spurred on my interest in the investing landscape. Um, During my time with PwC as well, I kind of leaned more into professional qualifications. So I'm a fully qualified accountant, tax advisor and financial advisor. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, around October, I decided that like a lot of people, I wanted to start a bit of a a pandemic related project. And I just started making educational and informational finance videos from my bedroom. And it's kind of grown into my full-time gig now. And that's where you're at. So that's what you're doing entirely now is that, so a lot of it would, would it, involve like a lot of content creation and um like what is your kind of job looking like at the minute compared to maybe what it was a few years ago yeah so i suppose like you know i i left my job with pwc <clears throat> excuse me um in october 2021 um is, is when i finished up and for the first year of kind of self-employment doing the channel i was effectively just trying to upload on the youtube channel about two to three times per week um, and I was fairly consistent, consistent with hitting that goal. So that would effectively involve me, you know, brainstorming ideas for content, uh, coming up with the script writing for the actual content itself, recording the content, editing it, doing all the thumbnails, all that kind of stuff and, and putting that up. But now in 2023, I've kind of set myself some new content goals. So one thing I'm really leaning into this year is short form content. So I'm aiming to do at least six six short videos a week and I post them across YouTube Shorts, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook Reels, Instagram Reels. And then I'm also doing three long form content videos a week, which exclusively go up on YouTube. So it's very busy, but I love doing it because it's my own business. Whereas, you know, when I was working with PwC, I might be doing 60, 70, sometimes even 80 hours a week in the height of busy season. And while I did love my job there and I was quite good at it, it was obviously for you know, the partnership, it wasn't for me as an individual. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely love being self-employed. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot more freedom with it. Um, I haven't been working for somebody for years and just the thoughts of it, like there are benefits. I think there's pros and cons to everything, like, you know, getting paid holidays and all this kind of stuff, but um, a bit more, we'll say security, as people say, but just mm. the thoughts of having to, for me, work in like a strict, you know, structure where I actually have to like give advance to take time off or take a day off here or there or even just do a bit of travel for me is just not worth it anyway I think once once you kind of experience it it's like a it's a completely different life but it's probably as much work like would you say you're working 
a lot of hours still like is, is it still looking like 40 50 60 hours some weeks or is it toned down a little bit now no it's a yeah it's it's, it's definitely up there in terms of you know the hours put in but as i said it's it kind of doesn't feel like it because yeah you know obviously i'm building up my own thing and i i love doing it you know it's i've always had a had a creative aspect to to my life you know i've played music since i was a very young teenager and i've been part of bands playing music live music for years and kind of content creation now lets me fuse that creative aspect of my mm. life with also my educational and professional background um so i i, I love doing it um and i'm happy to kind of put in the hours and you know i might only get one day one proper day off a week and i might be doing something the other six days but again i'm happy to do mm. that because i love doing it yeah and it, it's that kind of cliche thing that it doesn't really feel like work when you enjoy it that much but i'm the same like i i do photography as well i haven't done a whole lot now in the last while but i've moved that kind of love for photography over to my own content creation and as you said it's like you just kind of get in the flow with it and it's there's a lot of freedom to that as well and if you can make that part of your work it's great yeah and i think as well like even the nature of of the content i'm producing you know it it does have a positive impact on people's mm. lives and i think when you get positive feedback from someone in terms of your content it's it's really kind of it's a nice sense of affirmation you get you know it's like because you know yourself like you could put a lot of time into certain bits of content and then you upload it and then there's just no response at all you know yeah. it might not get the traction you think it would but those comments where it's like oh this was a really helpful video and this helped change my perspective and i'm gonna implement this going forward like when you hear stuff like that it's like yeah that's that's why i'm doing this yeah absolutely um so we'll get into the the money stuff what what in your eyes is kind of like a good way to spend money and be with with money or i guess what does like being smart with money actually look like because i think this is going to depend on who you ask but asking a professional yeah i mean look i think um you know everyone's relationship with with money and kind of their perspective on it is going to be different from person to person mm. you know i've talked a lot about you know kind of how you're brought up and your kind of family's perspective on money and your your friends kind of perspective on money and you know the attitudes in your social circles it's going to be different for everyone you know you could have one group of people who are of the ideology that when money comes in it goes out just as fast and you're spending it it's money's there to be spent and you know you might be spending your money on nice clothes and nights out and new cars and nice accommodation or whatever it might be and then you obviously have people who are more conservative who you know the thoughts of wasting money would keep them keep them up at night um mm -hmm. so i think you know my my perspective on it is at a very general sense you need to respect money but also be indifferent towards it it's the it's the kind of quote i use it's a guy called anton creel he's a money manager for uh, goldman sachs or he was an ex-money manager for goldman sachs in the uk but that's how he described it and my perspective on that is i think the best way to view money is in terms of respect you have to respect what it can do for you if it's used correctly um because ultimately money is a tool and like all tools if it's used correctly it can allow you to do certain things but if you mistreat that tool it's not going to fulfill any sort of predefined purpose and then there's also the sense of indifference that you have to money as well right so you know human beings we tend to have an emotional attachment to our money I mean, the, the psychological impact of the thought of losing money is, is twice as strong as the psychological uh, effects of gaining money. So um, we really don't want to take a lot of risk with our money, but as we can kind of talk about, risk is a fundamental component for actually growing your wealth over time and ensuring that you have a nice sum of money in the future when you retire to live off of. And is, is that kind of in a nutshell what you think? being smarter on money is like having a little bit of money where you're risking it we'll say a little bit but knowing that it is more than likely building your wealth in the future yeah I, I think you know like there's there's a kind of misconception in society around what risk is and I suppose the most effective way to kind of use your money I mean if you kind of look at the the embedded money practices in our society it's all kind of quite uniform in the sense that a lot of people will work a job, they'll save money in the bank, that money will be saved then for the purposes of a deposit on a home, the home will be purchased, you'll get a mortgage, and then you continue to work and, you know, use your cash to kind of pay off um, the mortgage debt. 
yeah. all the while any kind of excess savings you have might be sitting in a bank account that's kind of like the i suppose the stereotypical classic use of money and um, that people will have and then they'll be using their savings or the cash in the bank account to pay for various sort of things like cars and utilities and rent and whatever else and um there won't be a lot of extra thought beyond the bank account being put in um mm-hmm. and i think one of the biggest kind of failings in our money society at present is the lack of thought being put towards investing and effectively using investments as a tool to grow your money over time, as opposed to leaving it in a bank account. Um, you know, you'd have to be living under a rock for the past two years to not have heard of inflation, uh, but inflation mm-hmm. is effectively what will erode the value of your money uh, in your bank account over time. And one of the fund- fundamental reasons why we invest our money is to protect the value of it from inflation. So that's really something that's like one of the central purposes of my channel is to kind of highlight to people the reason why investing is so important. And one of the, one of the reasons why is, is protecting the, against inflation. So um, yeah, that's really something that people could be doing better with their money is, is putting it towards investments. And what are some of the investments that you're you're kind of advising because I'm sure there's a big difference. Well, I know there's a big difference between like just throwing money on some crypto or throwing it into Bitcoin and hoping for the best and uh, maybe putting it in a bit of a safer place. And like, what are the forms of investment that I guess are, are we'll say the smarter ways to go about it? Yeah. So look, I mean, it's hidden in the bank. Yeah. So I mean, look, the the kind of classic example I can give you of, of how not to invest is kind of what unfolded in the wake of kind of 2020 2021 so when the um when the global pandemic broke out in march 2020 the stock market saw its biggest single day loss in history um i think at the peak of it it was down over 35 or 38 percent in a in a couple of days which is pretty much unprecedented um and funnily enough i had actually just started investing about six to seven months prior to that crash um so that was a that was a real treat for me because i had kind of just started getting involved with investing and then literally the biggest single day crash comes six months later and you're opening up your investment account and it's totally in the red it's it's definitely a a sight to behold but um i think after that like what what followed was one of the biggest bull runs in in modern history as well so bull run is effectively when the market is going up at an exponential rate and that was everything from the stock market to cryptocurrencies and, and other types of investments as well. Um, but I think one of the one of the biggest problems that existed in 2020 was kind of this herd mentality towards high risk investments in the hope of effectively trying to get rich quick and trying to make money um, effectively with no research and, and, and kind of just gambling that something will go up exponentially. So the classic examples were, you know, GameStop stock, AMC stock, kind of meme cryptocurrency coins like Dogecoin and Shiba Inu. You know, people yeah. were promoting these kind of investments on forums like Reddit and stuff like that. And you, there was a lot of YouTubers covering it and a lot of money was being put into these investments. So, you know, when people hear the term investing, a lot of people kind of think that that activity is investing. It's not, it's gambling because you're, mm-hmm. you're the actual decision to put money into the product, into the financial product is not backed up by any rationale other than the fact that you might make money. And that's effectively a gambling decision. I mean, why else do you gamble? Because you might make money. So it's, it's, it's the, it's the same thing. Um, so the kind of correct way to go about investing for, of the population is a to invest with a long-term horizon in mind. So what do I mean by long-term long-term in the stock market or any kind of investing uh, methodology is typically 20 to 30 years. So we're talking about growing your wealth over decades. Um, There is no get rich quick formula in the stock market, no matter how much people want to believe there is. It's just not possible. All the data shows that if you look at any kind of extended long period of time, consistent, sensible long-term investments in the stock market always beat out any sort of attempts to, you know, beat the market as a whole and earn kind of exponential returns. So we know that it works. So the way in which you actually make those investments is through what's known as index funds. Um, 
So effectively, what an index fund is in its simplest term, it's a, it's a financial product that you can buy that effectively allows you to own the entire market as a whole. And what's great about them is, so if you think about it, like you have like the likes of an S&P 500 index fund. So what that is, is the S&P 500 index itself. That's a measurement tool that measures the performance of the top 500 mm-hmm. company stocks in the United States. So if you buy an S&P 500 index fund, that's a financial product which owns those top 500 stocks. So you can effectively buy this fund and you will own all of the stocks that are included within that fund. So what's great for the average investor is that this requires zero research, effectively zero time. You can use many online brokerage accounts to automate your investments into these products. And the data shows us that if you do this over 20 to 30 years, you'll actually be more successful than a lot of the so-called investment professionals who try to effectively beat the market, beat the index for their clients, um, which doesn't work over long periods. So it kind of sounds complex, but when you actually kind of spend time looking into it and and Mm. boiling it down to the basics, it's actually a very simple practice. Yeah, I I know for me, it's like, it sounds a bit more simple to me in order that makes sense. But like, say, a year two years ago and I was trying to like wrap my head around this when I had a bit of money and I'm like what do I do with it like mm. it's very hard to actually find solid information because as soon as you go to search for it online you start getting hit with like you know invest in crypto invest in this do this do that and not even that it's like okay if I want to put my money in index funds like where do I even go do you know so mm. is there a way to like filter through that or they're like um is there a what am I trying to say like a a list of like go to we'll say brokers or um a li- a, i guess a, a way to like go to people who are going to be legitimate and not have that risk of losing all your money you know yeah yeah so there's kind of two things there so the first thing is in terms of being able to find index funds to invest in so all the major brokerage platforms these days so you know the likes of giro trading 212 trade republic book zero these are the kind of european um mm-hmm brokerage platforms that are available i'm actually i'm not sure on the the australian ones that are available but it, it will be a similar concept nonetheless so a lot of these brokerage platforms they effectively have filtering functionality so you can go in and you can say you know i only want you to show me index funds that will allow me to invest in the s p 500 or i only want you mm-hmm. to show me index funds that will allow me to invest in the global stock market as a whole or specifically europe uh european companies so it's kind of very a lot of these apps are very very user intuitive these days like they've gotten really really advanced and the brokerage platforms know that they're dealing with a consumer that probably doesn't have the highest level of financial literacy i mean globally only one third of the population is actually considered to be financially literate and the hurdle to actually be considered financially literate is actually very low. So if we're talking about like detailed financial literacy and understanding things like index funds, it's going to be a very small subset of the population. So these apps have to be designed with with that in mind. So that's why I kind of say like nowadays, the process is very, very easy. Like you can easily automate your investments into index funds from day one so that you never have to open the app again every month. Money is just invested automatically provided you find the Mm -hmm. correct fund for you. The other thing then what you're kind of saying is like, how do you kind of actually within the filtering functionality find the best fund? So, I mean, the first kind of protocol is deciding what type of fund you want. In my opinion, most people will be best served by either an S&P 500 index fund, a European index fund, an emerging markets index fund, which is kind of like Asia and the Middle East and things like that. Uh, or you can just go super simple and just have a total world index fund, which is what it sounds like you literally just own the biggest companies in the world and and that's kind of it mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so once you kind of have your your classification down it really boils down to finding out okay what's the cheapest fund to own and in turn when we talk about cheap uh with, with investments and investment funds we're not actually talking about the price of one share in the fund the fund itself will actually charge you the investor for for owning the fund because they have to cover costs and cover the cost of actually buying the investments and stuff like that so um, it's called the total expense ratio but effectively you're looking for you know if you if you know you want to invest in an s p 500 index fund 
in theory, you would buy the S&P 500 index fund that offered the lowest total expense ratio, but you would also have to consider things like dividends. Like does the fund pay you a dividend or does it reinvest its income to buy even more stocks, which would increase your share price? There is a couple of considerations for anyone listening. If you're confused by what I'm saying, you can just go over to my YouTube channel. I have a ton of videos covering index funds and things like that. But that kind of touches on your second question, Aina, is who do you kind of go to to make sure you're not putting yourself at risk of losing money and stuff like that. I would always say if you're going to be consuming financial content online, I believe it's your responsibility to ensure that you vet the person that you're listening to. So, you know, do they have the educational qualifications to, you know, back up what they're saying? Do they have practical experience in financial services? I'm not saying that these things are always required to be a successful investor. They're definitely not. And I'm not even saying that they're always required to be a successful commentator or, or a thought leader when it comes to financial information. But generally speaking, if you can see that this person has some form of experience and they have some form of educational qualifications backing up what they're talking about, generally speaking, they could be someone who's worthwhile listening to. Um, now, one of the biggest flaws of finance YouTube and finance content creation, and a lot of content creators fail to to mention this to audiences is that every financial decision you make and any financial decision anyone makes has to be considered in the context of their own personal circumstances. So one of the biggest failings of financial content online is assuming that one piece of content can be universally applied to every single viewer who's watching. It can't. So the content has to be consumed as an educational resource, but then you as an individual, you have to reflect on it and see whether or not that suits your own personal circumstances. Because if I was to make a piece of content that says, okay, the secret to success in investing is that you need to invest 500 euro every month in an S&P 500 index fund and do that for the next 30 years. Well, the obvious flaw is a lot of people aren't going to have 500 quid a month to invest in the index fund. So that's kind of what I mean. And like, you know, you could I, could, I could equally say, okay, guys, you know, I, I believe in Tesla stock long-term, which I, which I don't, but I could technically say that and say, you know what, if you want to be financially independent, you got to invest 300 quid a month in, in Tesla stock. And, you know, point number one is people might not have 300 quid to invest, but equally Tesla stock is going to be a highly volatile investment and it's not going to be suitable for the average person in terms of investment risk. So everything kind of has to be taken with a pinch of salt when, when looking at this content online. Yeah, that definitely makes things easier. Um, so what I was going to say just with, with index funds, so I understand them, but for someone who's listening, um, why wouldn't you just, let's say, invest in a stock like Tesla by itself as opposed to like an S&P 500 or an index fund? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So the primary reason is diversification. So the word diversification, when we use that in the context of investments, that just means don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So if you were to invest, I don't know, 100 grand over the course of your investing career, let's say you exclusively invested that in Tesla stock, your financial return, your investment return over the course of your investments is totally reliant on the performance of Tesla as a company and the performance of Tesla stock. So there's a great kind of hypocrisy or, or unfortunate reality of investing that if you pay too high of a price for the stock in the first place, even if the company performs well, you might not see the same reflection of performance in the company's share price, right? So, you know, if you like, Tesla used to have a price to earnings ratio of 1000. So effectively what that means is the price of Tesla stock back in like 2021 was trading at a price that was 1000 times its earnings on a per share basis. So what we can actually translate from that is if you were to buy Tesla stock at that price, if Tesla's earnings were to remain the same forever, it would take you 1000 years to recoup the value of your initial investment. So, so that's a very, very overvalued stock so that's what i mean that if you paid that price for tesla even if tesla does unbelievable for the next 10 15 years it's very likely that the earnings it generates won't be sufficient to justify the price that you pay to own the stock in the first place mm -hmm. so kind of long story short whenever you're putting a significant amount of money into an investment it's not wise to put it into one single stock because there's so many factors that can that can go against you the price that you buy the stock at might not be reasonable 
Um, and even if the company performs well, you might not see the gains or the company itself could, you know, completely go under or, you know, fail to meet expectations or it could be put out of business by a competitor, et cetera, et cetera. When you invest in an index fund, so I'll use the example for the S&P 500 earlier, your money is literally being spread out across the top 500 companies uh, in the United States. So clearly, if your investment is spread across 500 companies, that's far less risky than having all of your money in one single company. Because, you know, Tesla happens to be in the S&P 500. So let's say Tesla does terrible, let's say it completely goes out of business. That's not going to have as much of an impact on your overall investment returns, because guess what? Your money is spread across 500 companies and Tesla is only one of those companies. Whereas if all of your money was in Tesla, you'd be screwed. Your investment would go to zero or close to it. So diversification, not having all of your eggs in one basket is one of the reasons why index funds are so great. But by virtue of that diversification and by virtue of the fact that it's being spread across so many companies, there's not as much need to do significant research before making the investment. If you were ever investing in an individual company stock, you have to do a lot of individual research. You have to make sure that stock is reasonably priced and that it has good future prospects and that, you know, it, lots of other kinds of factors that have to be considered. So index funds are way, way more kind of friendly for the uh, average beginner investor. And I would even say experienced investors. I mean, I don't want to spend my weekends looking up financial statements and spending yeah. loads of time researching companies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of, so in terms of uh, picking an index fund to go with, um, yeah. What so what aside from um, the things you mentioned earlier, what exactly are you like looking for? Like in terms of, like there's different. Uh, I'm trying to think of the financial terms for it, but like the the rates, I guess, and like what you're getting back in return yearly, and like what exactly to to literally someone who has no experience whatsoever in this, like what exactly do you need to be looking for? when you're choosing which one to go with. Yeah. So, um, I actually, I actually made a video where I, I kind of broke down the 10 things that I kind of look at when I'm looking at individual kind of index funds to invest in. For me, the biggest things are number one, the holdings. So what does the fund invest in? So, you know, what companies does it own? Like is it S and P 500? Does it own those 500 top companies in the U S is it total world? Does it own, companies from all around the globe, is it a European? It's very important to know what the fund itself owns before you invest in the fund, because there are certain funds that can own, you know, it, you could get an electric vehicle, uh, electric vehicle stock kind of fund that you can invest in, and that will be a highly volatile and not so diversified investment. So you don't want to find yourself putting money into them when in reality you actually want quite a diversified uh, experience that an index fund can can provide you. So holdings is the first thing. So what does the fund own? The second thing then is um, the expenses. So how much is the fund going to charge you every year for owning an investment? So for every 1,000 euro you invest, how much is going to go towards fees uh, in the fund? So that's known as a total expense ratio, which I mentioned already. You want that to be as mm -hmm. low as possible. Um, again, one of the great benefits of index funds over other types of funds is that index funds tend to have the lowest total expense ratios. And that's simply because the fund is making investment decisions based on a stock market index. There's no need to have a professional investment manager at the wheel kind of picking investments. It's all done automatically based on uh, financial measurement tools. So that's why they can charge such low expenses. Mm -hmm. So the holdings is important. The, uh, the fees are, are important. And the other thing I'd also look at is dividend status. So whether or not the fund pays out a dividend, because if you think about it, the fund is going to own X number of companies, let's say 500. Some of those companies are bound to pay a dividend to its shareholders. So the fund is obviously the shareholder in the company, and then you're a shareholder in the fund. So when the fund receives a dividend from the companies that it owns, it then has the option to either pay that dividend onto you, the shareholder, or it can choose to reinvest the dividend into more stocks, which will increase the value of the shares over time. So mm. you have to kind of be clear in your mind what one, what kind of type of fund you want. So the one, the type of fund that pays a dividend out to you. So a dividend is just a cash payment that you receive into your brokerage account from, from your investment. That will be known as a distributing fund and a, a fund that reinvests 
the dividend into more shares is known as an accumulating fund. So generally speaking, accumulating funds are more preferable for tax purposes because you're not receiving income and therefore that income is not taxed. So I tend to, to stay towards the accumulating side of things. I know you mentioned return. So like whether or not investors should be comparing funds on the basis of return. I generally don't tend to do that because with index funds, you're kind of like, again, to use the S&P 500 as an example, we know the long-term average return of the S&P 500 is, is 8%. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it's an S&P 500 index fund, 8% is kind of, you're going to be getting the return in the market. So any, anything that's going to affect your return is going to be things like the expenses that the fund charges, which is why you want to make sure that that's as low as possible. So it's not so much investing solely on the basis of return as it is investing on the basis of picking the best index fund based on defined kind of metrics that are important. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so what what is a dividend exactly? So a dividend is effectively a distribution of profits from the company to shareholders, right? So, so to understand why dividends exist and why certain companies pay dividends and why certain companies don't, you have to understand what an actual a share or a stock in a company represents. So when you buy one share in a company on the stock market, let's say Microsoft, when you buy that share, what you're actually doing is you're becoming a part owner of the company because the shares in Microsoft are what determine who is the owner of Microsoft. So, you know, whoever owns Microsoft is the person or institution who owns the most shares in Microsoft or the majority, you know, they might own more than 51%. Now, Microsoft isn't owned more than 51% by any one institution or individual, but that's just the example I'm given. So when you buy a share, you're becoming a part owner of the company. Now, obviously there's probably, I can't, I can't remember the exact number, but there's probably billions of shares of Microsoft in existence. So when you buy one share, you are becoming an owner of Microsoft, but it's a very, 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 very small owner. Mm. However, what that ownership entitles you to is two things. Number one, the net assets of Microsoft. So that's effectively, you know, Microsoft is a business. It has cash. It has properties that it owns. It has intellectual property. It has lots of other things. And then it also has liabilities. It has debt that it owes the bank, that it owes other creditors. So effectively, all of the assets that Microsoft has minus the liabilities is what's left for shareholders. So if Microsoft was to close tomorrow, people, a lot of people don't know this, whatever is left over would be distributed to the shareholders in proportion to how many shares they own. So if you had one share, you would receive a tiny, tiny distribution of whatever assets are, are left in Microsoft um, after it's kind of, after it's kind of being wound down and closed up. But what the share also gives you entitlement to is the earnings of Microsoft, the future earnings of Microsoft. So every year when Microsoft earns net profits from its activities, they're technically the shareholders' net profits. So the management team of Microsoft effectively have three decisions. They can choose to take those profits and reinvest them in the business by, you know, I don't know, uh, acquiring other companies, by developing new products, by moving into new markets whatever it may be, effectively trying to increase the profits even more in the future so that the share price goes up. Mm -hmm. They can choose to do what's known as a share buyback. So if you think about it, if there's a a billion shares of Microsoft in existence and Microsoft say, okay, we're going to use our profits to buy back 100 million shares so that there's only 900 million shares in existence, because they're reducing the available supply of shares, what's going to happen to your shares is it's going to increase in price because there's less supply, right? Mm. Because like your, the value of the the share on a per share basis is going to increase. So that's called the share buyback. So that's the second thing that they can do. But the third thing that they can do, and they can do other things, but this is just in terms, this is just kind of basic overdue overview. But the third thing that they can do is they can pay you a dividend and a dividend is effectively the management saying, okay, you're a shareholder, you're entitled to the profits of this company. And we're going to acknowledge that fact by paying you out a sum of money based on how many shares you own. And we're going to do that on either a quarterly, half yearly or yearly basis. So effectively, a dividend is just a cash payment that a company makes to its shareholders in recognition of the fact that the shareholders of the company are actually entitled to the earnings. 
So that's what a dividend is. And it's a cash payment into your brokerage account. So when that cash hits your account, you can do whatever you see fit to, whatever way you kind of want to spend it. You can reinvest it. You can take it out into your bank account and you can use it. Obviously you have to pay tax on it. But if you consider someone who's in retirement, these can be great investments because if you have, all of a sudden, if you have thousands of shares in a company that pays a dividend, you're going to be receiving a lot of dividends on a quarterly, half yearly or yearly basis. And that could be a great source of income. Yeah. I actually came across a guy over the summer. He actually died a couple of months ago, but um, he was kind of giving me some advice around money. And he basically said that he, he lived off his dividends each year. Um, Yeah. You know, and it was just that obviously he had acquired so much wealth over time by investing in, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's, it's a big American, uh, brokerage, I guess you'd call it. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, was it? No, uh, it's one of the other top ones. I could, I'm not actually Let's sure. See. see if you can find it. It was a bro, like it was a bank. Was it like JP Morgan or? No, not a bank. It was, um, I think it was a brokerage, but I, I could be wrong. It's just, it's sick to me now that I can't think of the name. Okay. Yeah. But that's, that's a kind of a, a common thing that retirees will do. Like they'll kind of try to ensure that they own kind of income paying investments in retirement so that they have that kind of constant stream of income coming in to mm. kind of substitute their, their lack of salary when they retire, obviously. Yeah. Um, so just coming back to kind of, I know you're saying about leaving money in the bank and that, um, because of inflation, it's not really a good thing. So yeah. for, for, cause I know like fucking probably most of the people I know that, that that's where they choose to leave their money. It's either the credit union, it's the bank, it's the post office, like it's under the mattress. Like why, yeah. why is that not a good thing to do? Yeah. So, I mean, if we think about like inflation is, I always think inflation is probably the, the number one reason why someone needs to invest first of all, but it's also kind of the number one killer of financial wealth. And what's really kind of cruel about inflation is that you can't, if you're not looking for it, you can't see it. You can't really see its effects. So mm-hmm. when we describe inflation, we're talking about the purchasing power of your cash going down. So what does that mean? Right. Well, if you think about all of the cash that you have in your bank account right now today, you can buy, you know, X number of pints of Guinness with, with all of that money if you so choose, right? In 20 years time, it, let's, let's assume that you earned, you didn't earn any, a single cent between now and 2043 or whatever. In 20 years time, if we came back and we looked at the money in your bank account and we, we tried to go and buy the same amount of pints of Guinness, we wouldn't be able to do it. Why? Because the points of Guinness have in- increased by on average, probably 2% a year for the last 20 years. So if you, let's, let's try hypothetically say you have 20,000 euro on a bank account today, that same 20,000 euro in 20 years time is not going to be able to buy you the same amount of goods as it can buy you today. And the reason why is because things get more expensive over time. So that's effectively what we mean when we say that the purchasing power, what the power of your money to purchase things goes down because mm-hmm. of inflation. So the authorities that be, which is the, you know, the European Central Bank and the US Federal Reserve, they have put a long-term average inflation rate of 2%. That's their target. That's where they want the economy to be. So we can actually use that as investors and consumers to say, on average, over a long period of time, our money is factually going to lose 2% of its value every year on average. Now, some years, like the last two years, it's gonna lose a lot more because you know inflation in the Eurozone, you know, only a couple of months ago was 9%. So that means your value, your money in your bank account has lost 9% of its value in the course of 12 months, right? But again, you don't see that reflected in your bank balance. Your bank balance doesn't change in response to inflation. It's the price of goods and services in the economy that changes, and you can buy less with those with your money. So that's that's the effect. That's the effect of inflation. So how do we beat that? Well, sorry, I'll first I'll first answer why bank accounts and credit unions are are bad. The reason why they're bad is because they offer no growth for your money. Okay, so if you put all of your money into a bank account, you'll get paid interest. You'll get paid deposit interest for choosing to put your money with the bank, but it's going to be ridiculously low. 
it's going to be like, I don't know, 0.01% or something, something astronomically low. So your, your money isn't generating any money by being in a bank account. It's safe. It's safe because it's protected by various deposit guarantee schemes and things like that, but it's not growing in value. So that begs the question, how do we ensure that our money doesn't lose value to inflation over time? We have to invest it. And we invest it in things like the stock market and index funds because we know, as I said to you earlier, for the last you know, 50, 60 years, the average annual return of the S&P 500 has been 8%. So on average, your money in the S&P 500, in the S&P 500 index fund is going to grow by 8% every year. So if we know that inflation is going to reduce the value of your money by 2% every year, then the net effect is going to be 6% positive. Your money's grown by 8%, but it's lost 2% to inflation. So the net effect is 6%, but that's 6% positive. So now by investing, you're protecting the value of your money. And you can't do that with a bank account or a credit union, hence why you need to invest. Yeah, that definitely explains it pretty well. Um, so for, for people listening who might have money saved in a bank, do you recommend that they move all of it straight into like, you would say investments? I don't want to say everyone go and move money into index funds or... You know, I, I'm sure it's not as easy as just saying that for everyone either. And um, no. there's a lot to it. But if you're someone who has savings and yeah. you're relying on your bank for savings mainly, or that's where it sits, what would your next step be? Like, would you take a certain percentage of that? Would you um, invest a certain percent of your monthly income or what way would you kind of typically advise around that? Well, the first thing I'd say is you need to always have an emergency fund, right? You have to have some amount of money in the bank. It's essential, right? Life is unpredictable. Sometimes we're going to have unexpected expenses. We might have unexpected medical expenses. We might fall ill. We might get injured. We might lose our jobs unexpectedly. You know, our cars might break down and we might have to cover the cost of that. You just don't know what life is going to throw at you. So you need mm -hmm. to have cash in the bank to be able to cover, cover that. Now, if you open up any kind of financial advisor textbook, it will always say that you should have at least three to six months worth of expenses in, in the bank account. So if we think about what that means is if you take a look at your, your monthly expenses, so how much you spend in a month on various items, you know, essential items, discretionary spending, whatever it might be, what do you spend in one month? Multiply that by between three and six. And that should be your target of how much cash you need to have in the bank at all times. So that's kind of your emergency fund. So if you're more conservative yeah. and you like the kind of safety, like for example, in times when there's a potential recession ahead of us, which is where we're at now, it might be smarter to have to lean more towards having six months worth of expenses in the bank account. But in times when you know the economy is good and you're maybe you're not as conservative, you might have three months. In the three months worth of expenses or less in the bank account. It's totally dependent on the individual. I don't personally like that kind of rule that you have to have between three and six months worth of expenses. You know yourself how much you need to have in the bank in order to feel comfortable, in order to be able to sleep at night. So whatever that kind of number is to you, you need to work on, on getting that. My opinion is after all essential expenses have been covered and you have your emergency fund saved up, the only money that should be in your bank account, in my opinion, is your emergency fund. Because ultimately, excess cash in the bank account that we're not using is just wasted potential. It's just going to get eroded to inflation. If it's not there for our emergency fund, why is it there? Now, you might say, okay, well, Dan, I'm saving enough for a deposit on a home. And that's fair enough. Mm. But you have to have very predefined purposes for your money. Don't just have idle money sitting there when you don't know what it's for. It's either there for your emergency fund or it's there for a short-term savings goal, like savings, saving for a house or something like that. So that's the first thing I clarify. The second thing is things are actually getting better in terms of deposit options, specifically for, for Europeans. So, you know, there's a brokerage platform called Trade Republic. They just launched in, um, in Ireland there in October, just gone. And just last week, they announced that they're going to be offering Irish depositors 2% interest on their deposits um, with the platform, um, which is, you know, probably eight times higher than what the national banks are offering. And so what, the reason why I bring that up is 
if you do have the likes of a house deposit that you're saving, there are options where you can actually earn a better return than what the bank is offering for zero risk. You don't necessarily have to invest it. So it's all about kind of exploring those options. So let's say then we have your emergency fund covered. You know what you're doing with your short-term kind of deposits. At that point, then we're kind of looking at investing. And, you know, I would always say start with the pension. A pension and saving for retirement and investing for retirement is one of the most tax efficient things that you can ever do. So the governments of countries worldwide really want you to save and invest for retirement. And because of that, they offer their citizens very attractive tax benefits for doing so. So in many cases, when you choose to put, you know, a thousand euro, or sorry, not a thousand euro, but let's say 500 euro a month for the average person into a pension fund. First of all, in most countries, you don't pay any income tax on the portion of your salary that you choose to invest in a pension. Once the, once the money in your pension is actually invested, and by the way, you can invest your pension in things like the S&P 500 index fund, stuff like that. Once it's actually invested, any growth in your money in the pension fund is typically tax-free as well. And then when you get to retirement, when you actually go to take out money from your pension fund, you get tax benefits as well. So it's a very, very tax efficient form of investing. And because I always believe people should be investing for 20 to 30 years, it's totally logical to use a retirement account to, to fulfill that purpose. So if, if possible, I would actually prioritize investing in your pension before investing in index funds via, via a brokerage platform. Um, so once you've kind of said, okay, these are my pension investments, I have my emergency fund, I have the short-term deposits. If there's anything left over, idle cash, after doing all of that, that's when you might consider uh, investing in index funds or, or something else via a brokerage platform. But I will clarify and say that obviously life is for a living. I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't have any of your money available for, you know, experiences and having a good time, having the crack. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you want to minimize the amount of idle cash that's sitting in your bank account and you want to try to invest as much as possible, as often as possible, but still retain some degree of obviously good standard of living and have have a bit of fun. It's just about being balanced and, and kind of, you know, monitoring your spending and everything in moderation. Yeah, I was, I was going to say a lot of that kind of comes down to just maybe budgeting a bit and looking at how, I mean, looking at your bills and what needs to come out and factoring those things in, whether you're paying into a pension or mm. you want to put some towards a house and stuff. And then you know what's left over and then deciding how much do I need to live, maybe the life you want to live, but be a little bit frugal. And then you have a little bit left to actually invest that's going to be acquiring, acquiring you more wealth. It's not about like putting, okay, I've... 10 grand in the bank i'm just gonna put 10 of it straight into an index fund like yeah yeah exactly and i think as well it's very important for people to be aware of lifestyle creep so i can guarantee you there's people listening to this right now and they're like what is this lad on about i can i'm barely getting by on the salary mm. uh, salary i have and the expenses and that is a reality for a lot of people yeah. and a lot and of what i kind of something talk something i was going to actually ask about there actually as well so uh, you're probably going to answer it but it was just if you are in that bracket where Maybe you're just getting by, you either have some savings or you don't, like because mm. whatever situation you're in is a bit tricky. Like, can you and should you still invest and should you still be making kind of smart moves with your money? <clears throat> yeah. So I suppose like the harsh reality of it is, you know, and everyone hates this answer, but it's it's just the unfortunate reality of of building wealth. If you're in a situation where you're living paycheck to paycheck you really have two options when it comes to building wealth. You either have to A, reduce your expenses or B, increase your income. And the reason why people hate it is because it's so unbelievably obvious, but there's there's unfortunately no other solution. You have to do one of those two things. And a lot of the time, it's actually easier to increase your income than it is to reduce your expenses because you know, reducing your expenses all in the name of investing money is a dangerous game because, you know, you can reduce your expenses so much to the point where your standard of living today suffers and nobody wants that to happen. And I would never encourage that. So mm. the road of increasing your income is, is sometimes more favorable. Now I know people are like, well, if I could earn more money, I would. So, and like, I would always encourage like, look, you know, is there opportunities in your industry to potentially get a more high paying job? Are there any side hustles that you can start? You know, all the usual stuff. I'm not going to bore you by telling yeah. stuff that people already it's know. It's probably enough for those on YouTube, I'd say. That's what I mean, yeah. And like, just, it's just, unfortunately, it Follow is one Gary of those v things. For what? 
<laughs> and you'll hear a lot of them. Yeah, you will hear yeah. a lot of them. But it's it is the truth. You have to do one of those two things. And I think that's why the the, the topic of lifestyle creep is is so important. You know, like so many people, when they get a salary increase in their life, their first response is to spend it on something. Maybe they book an expensive holiday. Maybe they upgrade their car. Maybe they upgrade where they live. And ultimately that is exactly what is going to prevent you from investing. So that's what's called lifestyle creep. So instead of when you get a salary increase, your first response shouldn't be, how can I spend this? It should be, how can I invest this? Right? Because you ultimately have to find what is a, a lifestyle that I'm comfortable with that isn't overly extravagant based on my salary and on other factors. What am I happy to live at? And then you find that, and then that's obviously that, that defines your outgoing expenses. But then as you progress in your career and you start to earn more money, instead of upgrading that lifestyle, which is what 90% of people probably do, you need to allocate more money towards your retirement savings and more money towards your investments. And that is how you start to kind of slowly build wealth over time. Mm. You know, if you're in a position where you might have a lot of short-term debt, like personal loans and credit card debt, there is no point starting investing until you get that debt paid off because the interest rate on that debt is going to be so high it's going to exceed any return that you could probably make in a, in a year's time in the stock market so you have to get that paid off you have to focus on reducing expenses are you getting takeaway food three four times a week you know like there people will yeah. say oh i have no money but then they'll also go out twice a week and spend you know four nights a week eat, eat and take out food and they'll have three or four holidays a year and They'll probably live in an apartment that's maybe a little bit too big for them or they'll, you know, have a car that's a gas guzzler or something like that. There's always things that people can improve, but we just, we, exactly. But we as humans, once we develop a lifestyle, we find it very hard to cut things back, you know, subscriptions. Do you have a Netflix, Disney and Amazon Prime subscription? Do you really need all of them? You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. And those savings if we kind of strip them back, they can then be reinvested through the pension or, or through it or through brokerage platforms. Yeah. And I think the thing there is as well, like if you do decide to work a side hustle or you decide to cut back on expenses that ultimately it, it's not like you're doing it for life. If you do it for a short time, especially if you're strapped for cash, then you're actually, you're investing in your future self. Like you'll have more money as a result, not less. Like, um, so exactly, it's, kind, yeah. it's kind of like a short term, we'll say loss for long-term gains. And I think that's, yeah. that's where people can't really wrap their head around. There's actually a really interesting um, documentary on Netflix. Um, I think it's the, it's the explain series where they just explain like loads of random different topics, but they do one about money. So like how money works it's called explained money. Mm -hmm. And one of the sub episodes in the series is about retirement. And I always remember there was a psychologist at the beginning section of the video saying that one of the primary reasons from a psychological standpoint, why people are not where they should be in terms of retirement savings is because we as humans in the present day, psychologically can't connect with who we will be in 20 or 30 years time. So we mm -hmm. struggle with the, the concept of sacrificing our standard of living today for the benefit of someone in the future who we can't connect to. We don't know who that person is. Will that person even be here? You know, will we even be alive in 20, 20 30 years time? So mm -hmm. because we don't have any connection to that, people don't feel a sense of urgency unless, unless you understand the maths behind investing and you understand that if you don't start early and you stay consistent, you're not going to have enough money in retirement to, to support yourself. But if you're kind of, for lack of a better word, clueless, it's very, very easy to kind of stay clueless because again, you're not connected to that person in retirement. So you don't really feel the need to save for it. Yeah. And it's, it's very, very similar to weight loss and kind of improving your health. A lot of people just put it off now. It's like, oh, fuck it. And until it then becomes a problem, you know, and you can't, mm. I think it is that problem of not being able to attach to that future self and just be so stuck in where you are now. But yeah, try mm. try to think about your future self. I think is the big message. Yeah, Small absolutely, actions. and that's 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 the overall purpose of investing as a whole, right? Because you're protecting what's going to be the value of something in the future. Um, mm -hmm. And I've 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 talked about this before. You know, I at the moment the big kind of topic of debate in our generation is the housing crisis. 
yeah. I firmly believe in, in 10 to 15 years time, it's going to be the retirement crisis. The retirement crisis already exists, but not enough people are talking about it. You know, all of the supports that governments offer retirees in retirement, they are all under threat right now. Like yeah. we are facing a very dire situation. We have an aging population. You know, the number of people aged 65 and over in Europe is set to double by 2050. In the same period, the number of people aged 80 and over is set to triple. At the same time, we have falling birth rates. What that translates to is less people entering the workforce and more people in retirement. And that puts pressure under state support systems that pay out retirement benefits. Mm -hmm. So those systems are at risk of total collapse. And if that happens, the only thing that's going to be there to support you is your own private retirement savings and your own private investments. But guess what? If you haven't if you haven't started them, they're not going to exist, right? So that's why people need to get started as soon as possible and to invest consistently for many decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that like being old is expensive. You know, I don't think oh, people realize, and if you're not going to be getting access to any of those uh, benefits in the future, like it can be very very costly. Yeah, I mean, like, look, if you, if you retire at age. 60 which i think a lot of people would like to do and you live to age you know 95 which you know isn't outside the realms of reason with modern modern medical science and how life expectancies are increasing that's 35 years you know that's 35 years where you're not earning a salary and you have to fund your lifestyle based on what you've saved over the course of your working life that's the equivalent of living from 20 to 55 you know what I mean? And like people, people just don't realize how much money is required to actually fund that amount of living. Um, and that's why, and it's totally feasible. It's totally feasible to save the money over your working life to get there. But the key to success is starting early, staying consistent and increasing the size of your investments over time. Mm. But most people will leave retirement saving planning until their thirties or forties. And even though that's, that's still good that they're, they're doing it, they've missed out on 20 plus years of compounding effects, which could turn their two or 300,000 euro investment portfolio into a 1.5 or 2 million euro investment portfolio. Mm. Yeah. Which is a massive difference. Um, yeah. So just a couple, couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. Um, if you're someone who's, cause I know there'll be a lot of people kind of my age listening to this and thinking about houses and mortgages. Like if you're someone who's considering a mortgage over the next few years, like what, what are some good practices, I guess, to, to be kind of applying and learning now? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, look, the, the obvious things are going to be like, don't be engaging in any activities in your bank account that would lead to your bank declining your application. I mean, you can kind of speak to a mortgage broker to learn more about that, but the obvious things, you know, don't be putting money into the Paddy Power account uh, mm-hmm. every week. Like the bank doesn't want to see that. The bank wants to see that you have the capability to repay the mortgage effectively. That's the number one question. When you're going to the bank for a mortgage, the one thing they want to know is, are you going to pay us back? And you have to prove that you are going to be able to do that. Um, I mean, in terms of savings, look, as I said, you know, it's hard to know what way the housing market is going to go. And obviously the value of houses is going to determine how much of a deposit you need to purchase said house. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately, you know, just, just keep chipping away. If, if it's something that you really want to do in the very near short term, prioritize those savings. Um, as I said earlier on, look for options where your deposits will earn you a bit more money than in the bank. You know, things like brokers who are offering the European Central Bank deposit rate of 2%, that might go up even further in the future. So you could potentially earn 2.5 to 3% on your deposits in the future. You never know. So look for options like that where you can kind of store those deposits. Um and yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, just understand that buying a house and getting a mortgage is the, the single largest liability that you'll ever take on in your life is a huge monetary commitment. Um, mm-hmm. And you just want to be sure that when you're taking on your commitment, that it's definitely, it's definitely what you want. I think a lot of people in society follow the roadmap of, you know, get a job, get a house, get a mortgage, I'm sorry, get a mortgage, then get a house. But I don't think yeah. a lot of people put enough time into thinking a the financial implications of getting a mortgage but also be the restrictive nature of a mortgage right at least with rent you can just move to a different country and pay rent elsewhere 
with a mortgage, it's mm-hmm. there. You have to pay, you have to pay it off every month and it kind of limits your freedom a bit. So just consider yeah. that as well, I suppose, before you, before you make the jump. Yeah. And what about the argument of, um, rent being, we'll say dead money versus money going to a mortgage being put into something that you will eventually own, hopefully. Yeah. A very, very interesting topic. Actually, again, I did a full video talking about this where we looked at research papers between, um, deciding to, to rent and, and deciding to buy, uh, pretty much all the, the research indicates that where the cost of, of buying is materially lower than the cost of renting, then obviously you should, you should buy. Um, I mean, look, there are advantages of renting over buying. I would say the principal advantage is, is obviously freedom, um, freedom to kind of, I suppose, jump ship and kind of change where you are. And that's something that's important to me. It might not be important to everyone. You might be very happy to buy a house in the country that you're at. Um, also as well, I mean, look, the, the, you kind of have to look at it on a country by country basis as well. I mean, like Ireland has had some of the largest rent appreciation, rent price appreciation in Europe in the last 10 years. Um, whereas, you know, other countries, house prices have increased massively. Um, so how expensive it is to rent in one country versus versus to buy is going to be different in uh, between country to country. But I wouldn't necessarily say that rent is is dead money. I think rent fulfills a purpose for someone depending on what mm-hmm. stage of their life they're they're in. Um, but it definitely doesn't mean that you should always buy. Um, but there is a very obviously a very strong case for buying as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess it just comes down to what what life you kind of want to live, as you said. And- not be too married to the idea of going down the traditional route just because everybody else is um like i know if i was maybe single for example i might be in a country that has lower tax rates like you know Mm. has a a lower cost of living as well because my business is online and that's possible and i think for a lot of people as well like it is possible to to run an online business and do that and that gives you great freedom um Mm. like being in places where you're groceries might cost you a quarter of the price per week and your rent is like half the price like it's going to make a big difference if you're getting paid yeah um sorry the the one the one thing i uh i forgot to mention as well just in terms of what the the average person should consider with mortgages is obviously interest rates so we've seen interest rates increase from rock bottom levels pre-covid to very high highs at the moment um so effectively when interest rates are high that means your mortgage interest rate is going to be higher and that means you're going to have to pay higher monthly mortgage interest payments mm-hmm. so that can make things obviously not obviously it's going to make things more expensive for home buyers especially if housing prices don't come down accordingly but um yeah. it, it can also make things different difficult for actually getting the mortgage in the first place because the bank will want to be able to see that you have the capacity to meet those mortgage repayments based on your income. So, um, again, it's just, we are living in a very unique time financially. Like we haven't seen these set of circumstances for, for many, many decades. And I think mm-hmm. that people just need to consider the actual financial ramifications of, of the circumstances as they're presented before us. And one of those is definitely higher interest rates. Hmm. So maybe wait until until things might be in a bit of a better place as well or waiting for the right time, but that's kind of hard to predict as well. Exactly. Yeah. You can't, you can't perfectly time it, but uh, it's just definitely something to consider. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just one question I have at the end of the podcast and that's what is happiness to you? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, I think my definition of this has definitely changed since I've become self-employed. Um, I remember there was a great moment. I think it was, yeah, it was during this summer I was down in Wexford in Ireland and, um, I was down, my girlfriend has like a kind of summer home kind of thing down there. And it's kind of like right on the, on the sea. And, uh, I was just writing a script for a video at like one o'clock on a Tuesday. And I was kind of like, this is, this is great. Like the sun was shining and I was out on the deck and just writing, stuff for videos and you know i was kind of reflecting on my time in pwc and like obviously having to work on a laptop indoors not working on something that was passionate to me so ultimately happiness 
to me is being able to, you know, take a random walk on a Tuesday without having to ask permission to do so. Um, mm-hmm. and to be able to work on something that's, that's truly my own and having, having the freedom to make impromptu decisions that I feel will, will benefit my life without having to ask for permission. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I, I just, I had a similar, um, at a similar moment, I think but it was the opposite. It was when I was working face to face and like relatives came over from America that I hadn't seen in years. And I like missed out and everything. Cause I had people booked in and I was like, fuck, this can't happen again. Like, how do I avoid or, you know, avoid this happening again, I guess. Um, yeah. because it, it felt like I had missed out on like a part of life. Like I wasn't looking to go away on holidays or anything. It was just to spend time with people I care about, like, you know, and that's what's important in life. It's like, yeah. if you're that restricted, it's like, what is that worth to me anyway? Um, I probably could have structured things differently, but then going online compared to that, it's like, you know, the same relatives were over last year and I got to spend every minute with them. And they're like, thank you for so, so much for being so generous with your time. And I was like, no, like last time I didn't get to do this. Yeah. So like, that was a massive moment for me as well. But mm. yeah, I think a little bit of freedom is, uh, is super important freedom and also kind of appreciation in the small things as well um yeah and kind of learning to to find happiness in kind of the the average day and um, i think a lot of people strive towards some future long-term goal where they believe that that will bring them happiness but i think mm. if you can't find happiness in the average day then you're kind of you're not kind of working towards the right objective in my opinion and um, so mm. what are the changes that you can make to make your average day just better and i think if you have that mindset you'll be all right absolutely we'll end it there thank you very much no problem Anna. thanks for having me on